I'm Gene Kansas. You're listening to Sidewalk Radio. We explore the cultural and physical development of life in the modern city through the lens of history and the context of community. Today's show, Gone with the Wind, the holiday premiere. Brought to you by Perkins and Will and Hirsch Bedner Associates. Seventy-five years ago, on December 15, 1939, Margaret Mitchell's best-selling book turned blockbuster film, Gone with the Wind, premiered in sensational fashion at the Lowe's Grand Theater in Atlanta, Georgia. Over 300,000 people lined Peachtree Street, hoping to catch a glimpse of the Hollywood royalty. Clark Gable, Vivian Lee, and Olivia de Havilland, all in attendance. The three-day event was a milestone for Atlanta bringing worldwide attention and putting the city on the pop culture map. Three quarters of a century later, we're still starstruck. So, this month, in true Sidewalk Radio form, we peer behind the curtain, examining the history and cultural impact of this magic moment. Yet, as we look back at the pomp and circumstance, we also remember this landmark occasion with sensitivity and objectivity toward the question of race. We look at where we are, where we've been, and where we go from here. My guests today are Matthew Bernstein, professor and chair of film and media studies at Emory University, award-winning author of Where Peachtree Meets Sweet Auburn, Gary Pomerantz, and Tim Lee, a collector with a heart and the passion to prove it. Let's tell the folks who you are. That's a good way to start. Okay. My name is Tim Lee, and I'm a native Atlantan, and I collect Gone with Wind memorabilia. Basically, I uh, was very interested in Atlanta history, and um, I used to save the newspapers. They had the famous front pages and stuff. And my grandmother talked about the day um, that the city shut down for Gone with Wind. A friend of mine, Herb Bridges, wrote a book called Scarlet Fever, and in it, it showed the big famous front pages from the week of Gone with the Wind, and I had to have them. So I was hooked when that book came out <laughs> in high school. We're celebrating the 75th anniversary of Gone with the Wind's premiere at the Lowe's Grand Theater. You know um, a lot about it. Maybe tell us a little bit about that premiere and then what you collected and why you've collected it. The premiere uh, took place over a three-day period. It, uh, Friday the 15th was the actual date of the premiere, Festivities began on Wednesday, and the mayor actually shut the city down. So that was the first time that he even closed the schools. So even the school children were out of school. So uh, the workers began. Um, and that would have been Hartsfield, right? Yes, William Hartsfield. And he was also selected as the executive chairman of the Gone with the Wind celebration, along with Governor Rivers, who was an honorary chairman. They began constructing the facade uh, in front of the theater uh, the first week in December. They were going to be luncheons, receptions, uh, the Junior League Ball, and a benefit dance to support the Atlanta Historical Society and then the premiere on the 15th. So the premiere week was big. All of the department stores had displays. They had costumes in the windows. They had giveaways. Um, Everybody was trying to make money off Gone with the Wind (laughs) before the stars got there. I met a lady recently that told me she climbed a tree to watch the stars arrive at the the Georgian Terrace. (laughs) 
Wow. Yeah. 300,000 people in attendance, yes. right? Yeah. And it I got, mean, does that just like boggle your mind like it does mine? And you can see photographs of it. Uh, the people were like 20 feet deep. And the bad thing was the cops got to the point where they couldn't even control the crowd. So they just threw their hands up and said, there's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> They've never experienced such crowds before. Every, all the stars stayed at the Georgian Terrace, which, of course, still is here in Atlanta across from the Fox Theater. And you can go. Built and, in 1910, I believe. Yeah, you can actually go there and um, see it. Most of the stars came. And, that, and I'm sorry, but that – now, the Georgian Terrace is across from the Fox Theater. And a lot of people confuse the premiere of Gone with the Wind being at the Fox. It was not they there. It no, Lowe's. it was not. Well, you know what? Why don't, why don't you and I just take a quick popcorn break and turn it over to Matthew Bernstein to hear more about that? There were five dominant Hollywood studios, Paramount. MGM Lowe's, Fox, later 20th Century Fox, Warner Brothers, and RKO. What made these studios dominant was that not only did they have studios, and not only did they have national distribution exchanges around the country so they could send prints around at an operation of about a million dollars a year, but they also owned the most profitable theaters, which were first-run theaters. They constituted about 16% of all the theaters in the country, but they collected up over 75% of the box office rentals. Because this, if when a film came out, and if you were a Clark Gable fan um, or a Betty Davis fan, the first place you would see these films would be at an affiliated theater like the Lowe's Grand, which had been an opera house but was taken over by Lowe's um, after it was formed in the 1920s. So any time an MGM-distributed film came to town, it would play at MGM's flagship theater in the city. And the Fox, although it was called the Fox and it was built um, with the name of William Fox's studio, which would later become 20th Century Fox, the Fox by 1939 was run by Paramount. So... There was no way that Gone with the Wind was going to play at the Fox. Of course, they had the rally when the stars arrived at the Georgian Terrace across the street from the Fox. That's where the white stars stayed, the Georgian Terrace. But the screening had to be at the Lowe's Grand. One of the best things about Margaret Mitchell is I don't think we have another author where we have such an enormous amount of correspondence and letters left behind that we can research and, and read. And the, if you really go into UGA, um, every letter she wrote, she had a carbon copy of. I, mean, I don't know if you guys are young enough to remember that. Typing, they would put a piece of carbon in between two papers and it would make a copy. She had every letter she wrote, she has a copy of. And they have the carbon copy down at uh, UGA and you can go and look at them. You can see her thoughts, her opinions, and you know she's angry at people that you know she would tell you how she felt about stuff and she didn't like you or she was mad at you she would write put it in writing and you would get it and i thought it was interesting that there were fan letters that she answered after the premiere where she took parts of her dress and she would cut pieces off and send to certain fans that asked for a memento from the premiere she even sent her corsage the flowers from her corsage to a lady was she i i read or saw that she was kind of a little nervous during the premiere um how how well, she was sick, um, allegedly, <laughs> a couple of weeks before. So I think she used that excuse. She only attended uh, three things uh, during the, the premiere on that day, actually. 
and uh, she turned down everything else. Uh, she didn't want to be a pr- participate in any of that. I think she, um, when she wrote the book, uh, she felt like I think that only friends and family would read it, and she didn't really consider that it would blow up like it did. And so she wanted, I think, fame when she wanted it, but then she didn't want it when people were really got out of control. And she started getting just buckets of mail where people would mail the book, but they wouldn't put postage for it to come back. So they were expecting her to pay for it to come back. So here she's inundated with all these books and people wanting anything from her. Yeah, obligations. She stopped. The book came out in May of 36. By October, September, October, she stopped having anything to do with autographing, letting people get near her. She actually moved. Well, that's what we have to remember because the book came out and for years and years, you know, she was... Like you said, obligated and inundated. She quit in 36 autographing. So if you didn't get an autographed copy by October 36, she stopped. She wouldn't even do it for friends. Even at the premiere, Vivian Lee asked her to sign, and she would not sign a copy for Vivian Lee. She wrote Vivian Lee a letter, which she felt that she could paste in the front of her book. She was adamant. She stuck to her guns. I mean, when she made a decision, she stuck to it, and... um, she wouldn't she just wouldn't do it. it. Was she's what people would call a pistol, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, tell, so tell me about. Um, tell me what you brought. It's show and tell time. The show and tell. I brought lots of newspapers and magazines, mm-hmm. um, things that they sold that day um, to raise money. The junior league um, sold these uh, wooden nickels, so I brought those to show you the wooden nickels and ribbons. They little pins that they would sell. Uh, cufflinks. I got some Rhett Butler cufflinks to show you. Um, Gone with the Wind locket. Uh, it, what was called Woolworths to us, which was called W.T. Grant back in that day. They sold scarves and handkerchiefs. Um, so they had an array of items from the price range, you know, for people that didn't have a whole lot of money. You know, I think the, the scarves were a dime and um, a quarter for the big scarves. So. I think they had a range, a wide range to to get everybody that wanted to buy something. Do you sometimes look back uh, through the collection and say, wow, I haven't seen that one in a while. And now, like having done more research and lived more life, look at them differently? You know, I consider myself a history custodian. I'm just watching these while I'm alive. Eventually, I'm going to have to get rid of them. It's an investment. Everything you buy, if you're paying a lot of money for it, it's an investment. So as I get older, I start thinking about you know, what am I going to do with all this? And I really don't want um, people to make money off my collection. I, that bothers me to think that, about that. I've amassed it because I want it, it's a part of history and I want it to all stay together. And I would love for it to go to an institution and them use it and display it and let it live on. I don't want it to be sold. And uh, my family knows that, but... If the Atlanta History Center, if you are out there, if you hurry up and get me a room built so I can put all my stuff in it, <laughs> I would like to have one. I think Hattie McDaniel, she went ahead and said, I have other obligations, so I can't come to the premiere just so that she didn't put Selznick in that position of having to ask her. But I think she also realized that if she came, she wasn't going to get to participate like everyone else would. She couldn't stay with her fellow stars. She couldn't eat with them. She certainly couldn't walk in front in the front of the theater. They would have probably made her go to the back. And really and truly, I don't think there were any African-Americans at any of the events except for um, 
the choir from Ebenezer Church sang at the Junior League Ball and were out front at the premiere, and also was 10-year-old Martin Luther King was in that choir. Yeah, and let's hear from Gary about that. The Junior League Ball was held that night, and it was, like all things in Atlanta in December of 1939, segregated. Uh, the big names of white Atlanta were all there, the Robert F. Maddoxes and the Bob Joneses and the Robert Woodruffs. The only black Atlantans who were there were, were chauffeurs and maids hired uh, for the event. Uh, even Vivian Lee brought two of her black maids with her to Atlanta. And that night, the Ebenezer Baptist Church Choir, 60 Voices Strong, was there and performed, which was a bit of a controversy in black Atlanta. Um, a number of people in black Atlanta thought that it was degrading and, and the Ebenezer Choir shouldn't be there. Martin Luther King Sr., who was known in town as Daddy King, the father of MLK Jr., um, brought his choir there. And MLK Jr. himself was there. He was only 10 years old, and he performed with the choir that night. And it, it's interesting to think that the man who would lead a social revolution that transformed the South and the nation on this night, performing before the luminaries of white Atlanta, dressed as a field hand slave. You know, good things did come out of it. Hattie McDaniel won an Academy Award. It's the first time an African-American would ever get that for many years to come. And uh, unfortunately, even at the Academy Awards, she's in the back of the room and has to walk to the front. Well, it's just really nice that um, not only that you collect, but that you're willing to share. And I think that this is, you know, a way that people can learn more and, in your own words, ask more questions. Ask more, yeah. And really look at Margaret Mitchell. I mean, um Andrew Young recently did a uh, documentary called Change in the Wind, where he discovered her secret um, giving money for scholarships for African-American men to become doctors because her maid got sick at the time and no one would treat her. She couldn't take her to the hospital, and even Margaret's own doctors wouldn't work on her. So it angered her so much that she decided to start going to Morehouse, I think it was Benjamin Mays, uh, and sending money secretly to him to put African-American men through college to become doctors. I'd like to thank my guests today, Matthew Bernstein, Gary Pomerantz, and Gone with the Wind collector, Tim Lee. Of course, we'd also like to thank our sponsors, Perkins & Will and Hirsch Bedner Associates. And to you, our friends and fans, thank you so much for another wonderful year here on Sidewalk Radio. Have a festive holiday season, a happy and healthy new year, and many joy-filled moments until we meet again. Fred, you go. Where shall I go? What shall I do? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn.